Colossians chapter 2, we are going to take our second lap around those first few verses. I assure you we won't get through them again, but by now you know that my outline is mostly a guide and a direction. It probably won't be the totality of what we cover this morning, but we'll, I promise we'll make it halfway at least. So Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. This time we're going to read all the way through verse 7, like I said, even though we won't get there, it'll be helpful for next week. Colossians chapter 2, this is Paul reading, writing uh, to the church. He says, I, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf for those who are at Laodicea and for all of those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, attaining to all the wealth that comes from full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures and the wisdom of the knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive arguments. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word that guides us into truth, that guides our paths in the way of righteousness, and guides our hearts closer to you. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. When we started chapter 2 last week, and we made a very special note of uh, recognizing Paul's burden for the Colossian church. He's there in Rome. He is under house arrest himself, so things aren't necessarily going swimmingly for him. He's awaiting a trial under under, uh, Emperor Nero, and and while he is there, he writes letters to several of the churches. We call them the prison epistles, where he writes to the Ephesians, the Philippians, and then also here to the Colossians. And then there's one other little book that's if you're reading your Bible, it's kind of disconnected. It's called Philemon, which some say should actually be a part of Colossians or maybe uh, second Colossians because it's written to this man Philemon who is the leader in the Colossian church, uh, someone who is, uh, is gathering the church to meet in his house. And so uh, the dynamic that's taking place there is a part of what we see in Colossians. And so we're going to get there at some point. That's not a story for this morning. But it's those four letters uh, that make up the, the heart of Paul for the church. And, and every city is a little bit different. Every city has its own story. The, the struggle of faith that's taking place in some of those cities is different for one church than it is for another. But it seems like the solution, whenever you read one of the letters, the solution to their trials and to their temptations that they're going to face in this world uh, is pretty much the same. Strive for unity in the church and loyalty toward Christ. So these aren't, aren't separate endeavors. They're, they're not going in different directions. It's, it's not that sometimes we are, are, are unified and other times we are being loyal to Christ. No, we're, we're, we're bringing them together. And as we are being loyal to Christ, we are being unified together as the church. And that, that two-sided coin is the Christian life. Preserving, protecting the unity of the church and living loyally to Christ. And so Paul's tone, uh, as he is writing this, it's very parental. He, he's that parent that sees his child far away and he is worried. Right? He, he's the dad who knows that his child is going to bump into a few things now that they're out in the world by themselves. 
that the kinds of situations and circumstances that they are going to face are, are, are going to be a challenge, they're going to be a hardship, and he, he just wants to go there, and he wants to help them, he wants to comfort them, and he wants to protect them. Probably Paul is talking to himself while he is in prison in the same way that maybe you and I have done when our kids moved out. They've gone off into that big bad world to make a life for themselves. And when they call, asking for help, asking for guidance and asking for wisdom, because something didn't go the way that it was supposed to, things just aren't working out, this wasn't the way that I, I thought I would feel, this isn't the way that I had this planned, and I don't know what to do, there's that part of us that just wants to go and to make it better. Right? Like we just want to go there, we want to rescue them, we want to bring them home, we, we just want them to be safe, right? And then there's that other part of us that knows that they've got to stick it out. That they have to grow into this, that they have to learn from whatever it is that they're going through. We want them to take the lessons and we want them to take everything that we've taught them about Christ and we want them to be able to stand on their own, not by themselves, but that they're becoming their own person in Christ. That they're learning to walk in him and to trust in him in and through all of these experiences that are far away from us. That's where Melanie and Ara right now in our parenting, Jaden and Riley, they are at that stage. Evan is next and he is chomping at the bit to get going. Uh, and uh, when Elena is ready and she's 37, we're going to let her go. <laughs> we really will. It'll be fine. By then we'll be, we'll be ready. Or so we hope. But what Paul is experiencing is much more than this parental angst. He says that he is experiencing an element of spiritual anguish because of the intense struggle that he knows the church is going to face. He, he says, I have this internal turmoil that I am experiencing on your behalf because I have been there. I have seen what you're about to go through firsthand. I've seen and I've been a part of the cost of following Jesus. And I know the toll that it takes on the physical person, on the spiritual person, on the, because there is a spiritual battle that is being waged. And in that life, as believers, as we are trying to grow up into Christ, who is our head, there is sometimes it feels like a relentless and merciless attack that comes against us. And then at other times it seems that there is a subtle and maybe sly deception of wickedness that is after us. And so out of love for his brothers and sisters in Christ, he, he just wants to prepare them by sharing his concerns with them. And, and by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he is preparing us. Because I think the context of who he is writing to and the situation that they are in is very much like our own. And so he's, he's wanting them to contend for their faith, to pursue Christ, and to live courageously in the world. And that's what he wants for us. And so last week we looked at just that first couple of phrases in verse 2 to see that Paul's concern was for our spiritual resolve our spiritual resolve. He's writing to believers all around the city of Colossae and Laodicea and in that region. And he says, my, my, my weight, the burden of my soul, the thing that actually weighs me down is that their hearts may be encouraged having been knit together in love. And so we unpacked that last week. And I'll just summarize what, what he is saying. Paul is concerned for every Christian. 
right? Not just the church, but he is concerned for every Christian that when their faith in Jesus is denigrated, when their understanding of Jesus is challenged and contradicted, that they will have cause to doubt the truth of Jesus and withdraw from living boldly for Jesus. He knows that when there's that pushback and the things that you just believe to be true suddenly are being resisted and pushed against, that there's a tendency for us to withdraw ourselves. And he doesn't want that for us. And so everything that Paul writes in his letter is to drive away doubt and to bolster our spiritual resolve. And as I wrote in your notes, that we are determined to be courageous in our world. And then Paul adds, because of our love for each other. One of the ways that we become courageous in our faith, one of the ways that you can help someone become courageous in their faith is connected to the love that they will receive from you as the church. So as believers, our love for each other makes us bold. It actually makes us more brave because there is something in the very nature of love itself that is motivational and I would say even aspirational. That when we are loved, when, when we know someone loves us, there are a lot of things that we will try that we might hesitate if it weren't so. Paul writes in Corinthians, he says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. All because of love. Another way that we become courageous in our faith, and that's going to be what we look at this morning, is by having a full assurance of our faith. That when we are settled in our understanding of Christ and our relationship with him, then we can be more courageous and more bold in living that life out. And so Paul's concern is now for our spiritual assurance. It's not just for our resolve, but for the assurance that you and I are going to face when what we believe and how we live is confronted. And so he says in verse 2, picking up where we left off, and attaining to the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And then he says in verse 4, I say this, and when he says this, he's, he's talking about everything he said so far and everything that he's going to say next for the whole four chapters, five if you include Philemon. He says, I'm writing all of these things to you so that you will not be deluded with a persuasive argument. I'm trying to protect you from being deceived, from being deluded, from having all of these fine-sounding, reasonable-sounding arguments that are going to con contradict the Scripture and the teachings of the apostles so that when, when Paul, he, he, he recognizes these things are coming back onto the horizon, he takes us back into the mystery of God. Right? He, he, doesn't, he doesn't work his way into their domain. He, he says, Christian, come back to Christ. Let's dwell, let's meditate, let's focus on the mystery of God, which is Christ himself. And so our entire faith, everything that we believe, everything that we hope for, is centered on Jesus. The Colossian church was facing the same challenges to their faith, from their culture, from their wise men, from their philosophers, from their religious counterfeits, from their celebrities, from their politicians. They, they were the same society, just 2,000 years older, facing all of the things that we face today. To the atheist, Jesus is nothing. 
To the Jew, Jesus is blasphemy. To the philosopher, Jesus is an ethical teacher. To the religious, Jesus is a moral teacher. To the Gnostic or to the mystic, Jesus is a spiritual teacher. And at best, a guide to their own higher enlightenment. Only to the Christian is Jesus everything. Only to the Christian is Jesus everything. He is the only God and King. He is our only Lord and Savior. He is the creator and the sustainer. He is the image of the invisible God. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. From him, through him, and to him are all things. In him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And so in the spiritual and the, and the philosophical marketplace of the world, Jesus is either too much or he is not enough. And their desire is to lure us away from our confidence and to letting go of our assurance and to see life through their eyes. But for us, for you and me, for the Christian, our heart and our mind needs to be settled on Jesus. Isn't that your experience? For those that you share the gospel of Christ with, for those that you are bold enough to speak the name of Jesus, if they aren't Christians, don't they just kind of give you a pass and say, nah, you don't really know what you're talking about. It's, it's not really the way that you say it is. They will begin to deny and demote Jesus from his rightful place as their great God and Savior in whom Paul says are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so, so Paul's concern, first of all, for our spiritual assurance is that we are centered on Christ, that our faith is built on Jesus alone, no more and no less, all Jesus. And with, with Paul, we can see that if Jesus isn't who he says he is, if he didn't die to forgive us, if he didn't come back to life to redeem us, then we've got nothing. It's all Jesus or nothing. That's why the Holy Spirit, he leads the New Testament writers to be so thorough and to be so detailed and to be so focused on who Jesus is. Because there is no plan B. There is no, nowhere else that we can go. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And to, there is no other way to the Father except through him. And this is where Paul takes direct aim at the mystics or the Gnostics of his day. Those people believe that there is hidden knowledge. And we think of Gnosticism or this kind of mysticism. It, it's sometimes hard to understand, but it shows up across a bunch of different religious ideologies. A, a person can be a, a Christian Gnostic. It makes them not Christian. It just makes them a, a Jesus form of Gnostic which is a really weird contradiction. But basically Gnosticism is just this desire for hidden knowledge and hidden secrets. There is this concept that there are truths out there that have only been revealed to a few people. There's this inner circle that, that only a few people really understand the secrets of the universe and all of the things that are a mystery and all of the things that are hidden. And so in order to access these things, to be enlightened and to, to, to receive their form of salvation, the average person, the you and the me of society is going to have to go to that guide or, or go to that teacher and find out what we have to do next. 
And that's why Paul uses that word hidden. He, he, he uses their words kind of against them. He, he's describing the, the treasury of Christ's wisdom and understanding. And it's a play on words and he's, he's connecting it to the things that he's written earlier when he said that God's will is to make known the mystery. He wasn't trying to keep it a mystery. He's trying to reveal the mystery. And the mystery is that it is Christ in you that is the hope of glory. That knowledge in and of itself is meaningless if it isn't connected to Christ. If you Google the phrase, knowledge is, what do you think the first suggestion will be that finishes that sentence? You can try it, you can try Google, you can try Yahoo, you can even try Bing, I'm the only person that uses Bing, that's okay. I can almost promise you that the next word that you will see is power. Right, you've heard that phrase, knowledge is power. And it's as true today as it was then. See, if you can make yourself the source of wisdom and knowledge, if there are people that believe that they need to come to you in order to achieve things in their life, then what wouldn't they pay and what wouldn't they do to acquire it? And and when that happens, then you can consolidate power. And that's the things that were taking place in the first century. And those are the things that are taking place in the 21st century. Is that everybody's saying that there's a unique way, they have a special way, they have hidden ways that that the average person couldn't possibly know, but you can know it for three equal payments of $39.99. I didn't know the secrets of the universe sold that cheap. But that's what it boils down to. Like, in order to really be enlightened, in order for your life to really have meaning and to have value and for you to be able to accomplish everything that you desire... You have to go to someone else. Then that's the fundamental basis of Gnosticism. Gnosis just means knowledge. The, the power of the mind and of the spirit. Holding the keys to spiritual enlightenment, personal happiness, and self-fulfillment. Unlocking your potential. Trying through personal achievement to unlock the mysteries of life and meaning and purpose. And it's a kind of a nebulous spirituality that's supposed to be untethered from reality because the physical world is evil. We don't need any of the physical world. We don't care about that stuff. You can do whatever you want with your body. All that matters is that you love God with your mind. Because... Whoever God is and whatever God you ascribe to is going to show you the way forward. The meaning of absolute truth is now unfindable. Because truth is subjective to whatever you and I decide it is. It's just a never-ending search for something that cannot be defined. And does that not sound like the spirituality of our age? You live your truth, I'll live my truth. I, uh, I'll live for my goals and aspirations, you live for your goals and aspirations, and even though they contradict each other, we're both right. Paul says all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ. And so even if we were to agree that there was, at some point, things were hidden, that they weren't unknowable, they just weren't revealed. But now in Christ it has become known. The the hidden things have been revealed. The secrets have been disclosed. The circle has been broken. The way to God, the way to eternal life, all of this has been made known and his name is Jesus. 
All of our spiritual longings, all of those spiritual searching, the deep questions in our life about the bigger questions in life, he says they have found a source where there is true wisdom and understanding. You can go to Christ and he will show you. Your soul can finally be at rest. Your mind can finally be at ease. You have found the answer that the incarnate Christ, that God took on flesh and he walked among us and that he taught us and that he gave himself up for us, giving his life for us so that he could give his life to us and is preparing an eternal home for us. There is no God besides him and nothing more for us. He is everything. And so for our assurance, for our assurance, we, we center our lives on Christ, but we recognize that we are also only sufficient in Christ, that our faith is sufficient in Christ alone because Christ is only one who is sufficient in everything. Sometimes we hear the word sufficient. And uh, we think that it means just enough, like just, like it's just barely enough. But that wouldn't do the word justice when we think of it in biblical terms or apply it to Christ. Christ is sufficient for all things, scripture says. In other words, he is enough for everywhere and for everything. And in all circumstances, he is always enough. Paul uses uh, more magnificent language. He says all of the treasures, all of the wealth, back in chapter 1, all of the riches of his glory, these are all descriptors of Christ's sufficiency. That he is more than enough for every one of our needs. That all of this speculation that's taking place in the world, all of these things that are chasing after one spiritual idea and another spiritual idea, they, they can all cease because Jesus is more than enough. And he always will be. Paul describes it like this as a prayer in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 3, um, he, he reveals to them the reasons for why he prays for them. And in verse 14, it says this. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant to you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to the fullness of God. As far as I was going to read, but while we're here, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul says, I want you to have a rich assurance. I want you to have a bountiful assurance. I want you to have a, an overflowing confidence in your faith because of Jesus, because you know him. And his indwelling presence is in you, the, that we have the indwelling of Christ through faith, supplying strength to our inner man. Bruce writes this in his commentary, Others may lead them astray with specious talk of mysteries, but there is one mystery above all others, the mystery of God's loving purpose disclosed in Christ alone. And Paul's concern was that they should come to know this all-surpassing mystery. 
and know it in an indwelling presence. To know it as an indwelling presence, that this isn't an abstract beyond us, that this isn't a God who is distant. But part of why we have assurance, part of why we have peace within when everything is a storm on the outside is because Christ is indwelling us. We have his indwelling presence giving strength to our inner man. And that's why I like the way that the the NASB translates verse 5 when we get back to chapter 2. When it says, I think it's 3 actually, verse 3. Better get there. 2, verse 2, where it says the full assurance of understanding resulting in true knowledge of God's mystery that is Christ himself. He calls it a true knowledge because it's more than just knowledge. It's more than just knowing about Jesus. The word that Paul uses there is epignosis, which is the gnosis and epi is everything to do with knowledge. Right? It's, a, it's a prefix. It just means all around and surrounding everything. Everything to do with knowledge is found in Jesus Christ. And so it's a much more emphatic term than simply knowing about him. It's an exact, clear knowledge that exerts influence on us when we know it. It's a knowledge that produces an effect. It's a knowledge that moves us. It's intimate knowledge that is personal and dear to us. It's the kind of knowledge that comes through a personal relationship that we've come to know Jesus more. And the more we know him, the more clearly and the more precisely we can testify of the truth of Scripture. That because of everything that the Word of God has already taught us, it has prepared us for a relationship with Jesus Christ. And then when we have that relationship... All of the things that scripture says about Jesus and who he is and what he does, they become confirmed in our daily lives. We get to be first-hand witnesses to the love and the grace of God. We can read it on a page and we can say, okay, that's, that's an objectively true statement of God's character. But because we have a relationship with Jesus, we can experience that love and grace for ourselves. We can testify that the things that scripture says about Jesus are true, that he is gracious and kind because he has been gracious and kind to us. That he has renewed his mercies to us each day. How many of us have gone to bed at night completely exhausted, completely distressed, and we're wondering, how am I going to make it tomorrow? I can't believe I have to do another day. And we wake up and Christ is there and he gives us new strength for that day. He provides peace, a peace that passes understanding, and he provides so much more. And so in Paul's concern for our spiritual assurance, he reminds us that the assurance that we need, that the assurance that will truly carry us through this life, and that will keep us courageous as we live in this world, is going to be supplied to us by Christ himself. It's supplied by Jesus, the indwelling Christ, Christ in you, the hope of glory. His presence in you and a growing relationship with you. 
that internal witness of the Holy Spirit that you are Christ's and he is yours and your understanding of Jesus then becomes clearer into view as you walk with him on a daily basis. Every so often I have someone ask me or come visit me or call me and say, I really need to talk to you. And the question that they ask is, am I really saved? Or or how do I know if I'm saved? I, I remember one uh, situation in particular, uh, because it was a, a young man who was engaged to be married. I was going to be doing their wedding. We had been doing all of their pre-marriage counseling. And he, and he was a brand new believer. Uh, she had been somebody that had grown up in the church and generations of church. And so Christianity was like in her blood. And for him, this, was, this, this idea of a personal relationship with Jesus was, uh, was very new. And so he came to me on his own just a couple of months uh, before the wedding. And he asked me if I could please help him because apparently his soon-to-be father-in-law had sent him to me to make good and sure that he was a Christian before he married his daughter. And you could see the desperation in his eyes, and he was pleading with me, please tell me I'm a Christian. And so we went through all the questions. Do you believe that you're a sinner and that your sin separated you from God? Yes. Do you believe that Jesus loves you and that he died for your sins to forgive you and that he set you free from sin? Yes. Do you, do you repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus? Yes. Do you ask him into your life to come into your life and to be your Lord and Savior? Yes. And we went on and on like this for, for 10 or 15 minutes just working through scripture and his answer was always yes and then it was silence. And finally he said, well, am I a Christian? And I said, Kevin, I can't answer that for you. But after what we've just talked about, the question is for you to answer. Are you a Christian? And you could see the Spirit of God rising up within him. As it was one of those Romans 8 kind of moments where the spirit of God testifies with our spirit to say that you are a child of God. And he says, yes, I am a Christian. I am. I love God. And I want to raise a godly family. And you can see the weight just lift off of him. Not because someone else told him he was a Christian, but because he knew he was. Because he knew Jesus. And he knew that Jesus loved him. Our assurance is supplied from within. It is confirmed within us, in our spirit. And we receive the promise of God from Scripture in full measure. That's why we need to nurture the inner man. We need to nurture the relationship that we have with God within ourselves because it isn't about whether or not we can go through the motions effectively or or believably. It's whether belief really resides within us. If Christ is not at home in your heart, if you are not grounded on him, if he is not the center, then we will be tossed around. And this isn't just in salvation. This is in the day-to-day events of life. When, if, if our 
faith remains shallow. That's what Tozer says, the dangers of shallow faith. If we maintain a shallow faith, then where are we turning to in times of difficulty? Will it not be for external validation and external verification? When the greatest assurance we can receive is from Christ himself. In Matthew chapter 7, um, right after he, um, and this is a sermon on the mount, so he's speaking to everyone broadly, after he, he tells people that there will be those that in the end um, will say to have been believers and Jesus will say to them, I, I didn't know you. There, there wasn't a relationship there. He simply says this in Matthew 7 verse 24, Therefore, Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And when the rain fell and the, and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house it fell and great was its fall. That idea of being built on the rock is, is that Christ is our foundation. And that everything we build is built upon his foundation. How strong and how steady and how sturdy he is. Not, not what we can cobble together as, as, a, as a form of spiritual or religious expression. Because that's Gnosticism. It's following in the course of the faith, following in the teachings of God's word. It's following in the teachings of the apostles so that we have a relationship with an indwelling Savior. I don't know if any of you guys watch Mr. Bean, but um, you ever see the one Mr. Bean goes to church? And, 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 and the whole time, all he's trying to do is figure out how to behave Properly, like he, he's not sure what to do, when to sing, when to sit, when to put money, when to take money. He, he, he has no idea what happens. And sometimes we think that, or maybe not we, but just the idea of, of religion or spirituality is that one form is as good as another. I mean, aren't we all just praying to somebody? Aren't we all just worshiping somebody? Aren't we all just looking to someone else to help us through life? And the answer is probably. But scripture says that there is a real and there is a counterfeit. The counterfeit wouldn't be very believable if it was totally different than the real. And so this religious pursuit that is kind of built into who we are as humans, that, that we're trying to figure out the big questions of who made us, how did we get here, what's our purpose, what's our meaning, what, what, what's the, where does evil and suffering, and all, like every religious system in the world is trying to explain that question. Every one of us is trying to come to terms to the answer to that question. And what Paul is trying to encourage us to, what he is concerned about, is that we're going to go into the world to look for answers that scripture has already given us. That we're going to go into some kind of a mystical experience to find out about what Jesus has already revealed to us. So that we get derailed, that we go off center, so that we move incrementally and slowly and then more and more rapidly away from him.
And so he's preparing us. It's, it, he's taken a long time to get there. Over the next little while, we get into a few more, more details, and it's like he's taking a really long time to pull back the arrow, right? It's a really, really long time building up the pressure. But the point is that there is a single truth that will guide the rest of our life, and his name is Jesus. Everything else is a counterfeit. Everything else is a deception. Everything else is a, uh, a persuasive argument trying to keep us away from the Savior who loves us, the Savior who gave himself up for us, the Savior who wants to give us life forever. That's why we focus so much on the presence of God. Because we don't want what we do to become superficial and just tend to become exterior. I, I was reminded this week as I was thinking about the Old Testament and, and the whole sacrificial system. And, and there's a lot of activity. There's a lot of things going on. The animals and the, the, the priests and the, the trumpet blow. Like, there's just a lot of activity. But when the presence of God came upon the tabernacle or the presence of God came upon the temple, everything was still. Because when the real shows up, everything else falls away. We, we want to be in the presence of God because in him we will have the assurance that we long for. In him we will have the peace that we desire. In him we will receive the truth that we so desperately need to guide our steps. In him is our hope and our joy. And so I just want to encourage you in, in your daily life, in, in your personal time, as well as in your corporate church life, that we pursue Christ. That when we read his word, it isn't to try and get to the next chapter. It's so that we can find Christ in his word. Now, we, when we spend time in prayer, it's not just to recite a list of things that are heavy on our heart, but to commune with God so that he can move upon us. That he can be the one that dissects our feelings and our thoughts and, and the way that we are going to give us true wisdom and true understanding. Isn't that what Paul said? He says, in him is all of the wisdom and knowledge. All of it, every, everything that there is to know comes from Christ. That's why when we gather for worship and we, we take extra time, it's because scripture says that where two or three are gathered, he is there with them. I mean, he's with us by ourselves, we know that. But there's something unique about the gathering together of the church and quieting ourselves in our heart to receive from him. Because let's face it, sometimes we come to church and our hearts aren't quiet. Our lives aren't quiet. We, there, there's nothing peaceful or restful or quiet about anything that we're going through. But we can come and we can be in his presence where he fills us. He fuels us. He helps us to know and to understand. He helps us sort out our troubles and our sorrows, and he helps us offer them back up to him in praise. We have 
the presence of the one true and living God. Let's enjoy every moment that we can with him. I'm going to invite our worship team to come up and close our service. And as we sing, let this be a time where the Lord really ministers to your heart, where he reveals things to your understanding, where he guides your thoughts and your meditation, where he takes the lead as we think and we dwell and we worship him. And let's let worship be interactive. Let's let worship be an exchange where we worship him and he ministers to us. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you desire to give us your peace, your rest, and your assurance. And Lord, I pray for anybody that's hearing this this morning, whether here in our room or online or from wherever and whenever it may be viewed, that does not have that peace from you, that you are not at home in their heart, that you are not the Lord of their life, that today would be the day of surrender to you, that all of the, the endless chasing and pursuing of everything to try and make them feel like they fit and like they belong, and like they can make sense of the world, that you would quiet all of the voices that are, are trying to keep them preoccupied and that they might hear your voice today saying, come, follow me. Come, my burden is easy and my yoke is light. Cast all your cares upon me, for I care for you. Lord, I thank you that you are sufficient that you are more than enough. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have a need in prayer, I would love to pray with you or there'll be folks that would pray with you here at the front. But let's make this time of worship just a tender moment of worship and adoration and asking the Lord to move and to build our life on him. Let's stand together. Mm -hmm.